Steve's break, just make sure we're on track and uh, if things are making sense to you so far, are we, are we okay so far? Okay, by the way, in your, in your uh, folder, uh, Josephine has is, is, is put in there a survey. This is for you. Um, sometimes I use that before class, usually with a lot of police, sometimes after. Uh, take it with you when you leave, maybe tomorrow the next day, just take it out and just go through the survey yourself. When you, when you design this to ask ourselves who we are when it comes to domestic protective violence, gender-based violence, interpersonal violence, who your agency is, um, Sort of, sort of a self, it's, it's self-explanatory, and maybe a start of a conversation with your fellow workers, if you're a lawyer, cop, advocate. So, are we evaluating ourselves here and here out to, to see where we are? So, so uh, let me take you back in time a little bit. This is my father's generation. I, I have to do this because I like to, you know, show that how far we've come, but we've still got some. Problems, obviously, that are similar. This is a training film for my father's generation on responding to domestic violence calls. And listen to the language. So I think this is interesting. 20% of calls that come into the station are family trouble. And this was Joe's first call. Joe had visions of being a hero, of defending some frail little woman whose husband was mistreating her. In this case, by a ruffled lady of the house to mind his own business. Is she and her husband going to throw things at each other? That was their business. So the language is interested family trouble. The police don't investigate family trouble. That's none of our business. But they didn't know what to call this, right? And then the thing was, she said, if we want to throw things at one another, that's our business. So it was like, why waste your time, right? It's a nuisance call, move on, nothing to see here. The problem here, obviously, and you can see it, you know, domestic violence offenders were killing victims in those years as well, and they were killing U.S. police officers. We, I've tracked this for years. Since we've had cops, we've had DV killers kill cops, not just victims, not just victims. Why weren't we connecting the dots here? I don't know why we weren't, but, you know, kind of a modern version of this looks a little bit different, but the language is similar. Watch, this is not Volusia County, Florida. Today, Volusia County deputies released more dramatic video of a domestic violence shooting. Shows deputies dodging bullets as they try to take a man into custody. Channel Michael Hart went through the video today. Michael, the shooting happened all. During the sheriff's office previously released some of this video, but more's coming up now. The jury has returned a verdict against the defendant. You're about to see and hear exactly what it's like to come under fire. This video may look like something out of a movie. And it all unfolded outside this downtown home in July of 2016. <laughs> 
Today, the Volusia County Sheriff's Office released more body camera footage of this domestic violence shooting. After a deputy takes cover behind a tree, you can see a gunshot victim crawling across the front lawn. Deputy jumps back and shots are fired from the house. She hears the victim cry out for help. The deputy approaches the side of the house and drags the victim out of the crossfire. Perhaps more heart-wrenching. Young children running into the arms of a deputy as the suspect remains inside the home. In the end, 26-year-old Emmanuel Rosano was taken into custody. Investigators say the victim was his wife, Victoria, who was shot on the backside after the two got into an argument. Emmanuel was later charged with aggravated battery and some counts of attempted first-degree murder for shooting at deputies. Last month, the jury found him guilty of one count of battery and second-degree attempted murder, but not guilty of the other attempted murder charge. Court records show Victoria sent this letter here to the judge saying she did not want to testify against her husband or pursue charges against him. Jail logs show Emmanuel is behind bars in Volusia County. The court has not yet set a sentencing date so far. Michael Lamar, Channel 9, Valentine's News. So that tree the officer was behind uh wasn't really big enough uh if you shoot at me i want a redwood tree you know but i'm a three or four or i want the next county actually or the next area code um but he got small you know police know what that means and um the children i mean real, real quick about exposure there's a lot of conversations with Uh, children of exposure. Um, yeah, I, you know, I was exposed to the unbelievable violence. I, I knock on the wood all the time. I made it out. We'll talk more about that as we go along. But I have these, uh, these memories of, of preparing uh, training for my own agency around you know, the hidden victims, the impact on domestic violence of children. I don't know, was it the 80s and 90s? We were listening to the experts who were telling us little boys about the age of five, you know, they start to identify with the offenders, talk about disrespect for women, in some cases, not all. Um, Dr. Anda and another, Finelli, uh, I think, down at CDC, who were cancer doctors, launched the childhood um, uh, adverse childhood experience test. Some of you all have worked with kids have seen the age test. That came out of the CDC. They've been tracking 16,000 people for the last 25, 30 years, most of them in Southern California, looking at drug abuse and suicide and divorce and you know hypertension and cancer after you expose the violence. So there's some long-range studies going on. But the one that has impressed me most about children that changed my view on training police was Bruce Perry. And Bruce Perry is a neurologist and child psychologist at Baylor. He's got a really nice film on YouTube that the California Attorney General's office produced called First Impressions. I use it sometimes when I train police um, and it explains a lot about childhood development. Now, if you're, if you're, you know, on top of this, especially for first responders, you have to know the developmental stage of a child before you do an interview. You can't interview a five-year-old or a 15-year-old, for God's sake. Uh, and there's differences. And the interview, just, just basic interview techniques. But what Dr. Perry, and I've heard him speak several times, he's just an amazing doctor. This, this guy's a serious brain scientist. He says that we thought that um, younger children, because they didn't know, 
they weren't impacted by the violence. And parents will say, you know, oh, like younger kids, they don't know, they didn't see it. And Dr. Perry said, that's not true. He said, when you get children 10, 11, 12 months old, that's when the brain is most adversely affected by the exposure to violence. And he's got these, he's got brain scans to prove it. It shows how the brain develops differently. He said that little, you know, 11 month old has got a higher rate of being a future killer than the five year old who's physically abused. And I thought that was really interesting because he, and then he explains, you know, in those years, one, two, three, that's when you learn to talk and walk and socialize and, and do the things, become a human. And kind of baked in, he said, but the brain can heal itself, but exposure is the big one. He said, we should all be more aware of exposure. And then a friend of mine down in Kentucky, K.K. Logan at the University of Kentucky, she listened to Dr. Perry and she studied protective orders in Kentucky. And she wanted to see the difference between exposure to violence of children before protective order was issued and exposure to violence after protective order was issued. Nobody's ever looked at this before. And what Dr. Logan found was six months before, her, her study group, six months before protective order was issued, children 18 and younger were exposed to 32 incidents of violence. Six months after the order was in place, one exposure to violence. So when you hear people say, well, you know, protective order is a piece of paper, well, true, but there's other things happening in the protective order that we don't see in law enforcement. So don't look at protective orders as just a nuisance civil process that I got to get involved in, but I don't want to be involved in. There's a lot of things going on here that really have an impact on families. Plus, it's a dangerous thing to do to serve an order. We'll talk about that as we go along as well. Anyway, I wanted to mention that with the kids, but here's the other thing, too, and I, I get off on the sidetrack real quick. But here's the other thing the letter to the judge. So, what do you think that's about? She got shot by this guy. So, she sent a letter to the judge saying, I'm going to prosecute. What, what is that day? That's fear. That's fear. And, and by the way, she's sort of telling the prosecutor and everybody else, this is over with. Didn't that what the woman said in the 1950s? Didn't she say, if you want to throw things at one another, it's the same, it's the same kind of behavior. That, that has not changed. What's changed in us is we recognize that as evidence. Minimizing violence by a victim is evidence. It should be reported in the report. Officers should be trained to understand what it looks like. They should write it in the report and present it to the prosecutor. They should write it in the report and present it to juries and judges. Because anybody with confidence who's worked domestic violence cases can get on the stand on the road and explain what it means. Any advocate, any social worker who's worked with hundreds of victims can get on the stand and judge and qualify them and say, tell me what you qualify. I've worked for 15 years with victims, 8,000 victims. Okay, so you know, explain to me what's going on here. Why would the victim not even be here today? Because they're afraid. Fear, 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 fear. And by the way, here's the other thing, too, that I think it's finally, after all these years, now prosecutors in Richmond and Enrico oh, County and Nashville and Baton Rouge and Charlotte, my city, now prosecutors are taking it to the next level. And the next level is if the offender makes the witness unavailable for court, they waive their right to confrontation. You can't claim right confrontation if you made the victim unavailable, the witness unavailable. And it's forfeiture by wrongdoing. So prosecutors 
uh, around, uh, by the way, Equitas, which is a prosecutor's resource organization here in Virginia. John Wilkerson, one of the guys who teaches, he's a prosecutor in Commonwealth for years. I've watched him train prosecutors on this. It's amazing when you see prosecutors go, I can do that. Yeah, you can go in the court and tell the judge, Miss Smith's not here today. And we'd like to have your, you know, uh, uh, we'd, like to, we'd like to present to you a motion to go forward without her. And we're going to tell you why she's not here. And this is the process. It's called forfeiture by wrongdoing. You present the report to the court, and then the judge said, let's see evidence. The officer gets on the stand. The officer says, Your Honor, we went to Miss Smith's house three times in two of the reports. She said, if I cooperate, he'll kill me. We won't have the report. We did arrest him for violating the order. We put him in jail because he violated the order, your order. And we got two phone calls from the jail saying, if you come to the court tomorrow, I'll kill you. And when the judge reaches a preponderance of the evidence, most often they'll say, let's go to the case. That is a lot of noise. <laughs> so, so and, and by the way, has this happened to you? Have you ever had a criminal case where the case was dismissed because the victim wasn't present? The courts have no choice often unless the prosecutor says, yeah, but there's a reason for that. And this is historic because prosecutors have done this on organized crime cases, uh, on gang cases for years. Now we're using it in domestic violence cases successfully. Again, you know, witness intimidation is as old as the right to confrontation. When you look at the law, I love the law. And I'm a hillbilly, but I love the law. When you look at the law, and the Supreme Court does it seven once in a while, you see them talk about a, a law from 1630 or 16, and you think, wow, they really go back. Well, the law is that old. Babylonian criminal code, the Babylonian criminal code, had you know, mentioned the right to confrontation. The Romans wrote it in their law. Right? We got it, our law, you know, based on English common law. And then basically is this, you know, you can't claim these things. And it was tried by the way. Supreme Court made a decision in 1878 with Reynolds versus U.S. In the Reynolds case, I just, I just think this case is so fascinating. I would have loved been a cop on this case. Utah was a state, and the Mormons settled Utah. I've got a nephew's Mormon. I'm not beating up on the Mormons, but they wanted to join the union, but they wanted to bring all their wives with them. And the rest of the country said, "Now you could be a state here." But you can't have more than one wife. So the head of the Mormon Church said, I'll test this. So his secretary Reynolds walks up to a U.S. Marshal in the Utah Territory and says, I got a bunch of wives and they arrested him for bigamy. Well, they got in court and they convicted him, but Reynolds made sure only one wife was present. So he, he absconded the witnesses, as they say. And and they and they appealed the case to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court listened to it. And he got up there and he said, well, they convicted me in Utah because with only one person died, there was no other witness against me. So I have a right to confront my accusers. And the Supreme Court said, no, wait a minute. No, wait a minute. No, we, we, we honor the six of them. But you can't come into court and claim right confrontation when you chase a witness out of the courtroom. That is a moment, I think. And, and, and after all these years, we're finally looking at that as how does it work with domestic violence cases? I collect motions now. All of them. I got friends in Topeka. And I say, if you've got a motion, give it to me because I give it to other prosecutors. Because this is where we need to go next. It's not with every case, but John, I heard John say this. He said, Mark, he said, when we start doing this, the defense bar sees it. They know that they're not going to have this, you know, this opportunity to dismiss a violent case because the offender 
from the jail that's controlling the court process. Makes perfect sense, right? So there are things happening now, uh, and I think that we didn't do in the past. This case in the past, okay, case is messed. I've seen it happen. And, and the prosecutor said, well, move on. We got another, we got another whole bushel load of victims here. We've got to move on. That view's changing a little bit. I think that's a, that's a, that's a great thing for us. But, the, you know, but the, the view of these cases has changed for police, and that is, it's not just domestic violence anymore. This, I, I call this the big four. When you look at domestic violence, you may be looking at other things too. You got DV, you got sex assault, you got stalking, you got strangulation, and we'll probably end up at a couple more than what's over there. But what's unique about this is these crimes are all interconnected and co-occurring. Now, this has been the real challenge for law enforcement for the last 35 years because every cop in this room, and me included, has been trained in the academy where the instructors say, over the next three weeks, we're going to talk about the law. We're going to talk about the Constitution. We're going to talk about your duties in a criminal justice system, which is incident-based by necessity. When you leave here, when you go out on the street to protect the public, you must keep your eye focused on incident-based crime. Joe stole his television in a burglary, charge him with burglary, move on. John got robbed at ATM, armed robbery, move on. Domestic violence case, you knock on the door, you come in. She says, come on in. And he said, what's the problem? She said, it's my husband. Now, now get this, you've got an incident-based computer. Is that a gunshot? <laughs> Serious training going on. So there's your computer, right? And you say, tell me what's going on. And she says, well, it all started about two years ago. And your computer says, what? Wait, stop, stop, stop. And you might even say, ma'am, whoa, 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 wait, 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 let me, let me just stop you right there. I don't need to hear what happened two years ago. You may not be able to prove an assault two years ago, no doubt, obviously, but the context is critical. And then the victim's thinking, wait a minute, I have to tell you what that started so you can understand what happened today. So we were leaving that out and we're, we're walking away from victims or the, the victims were saying, you have to listen to what happened to me. I have to explain. It, it doesn't make sense not to. It's kind of like, maybe in a way, I guess you're, you're on the street, you're working, you know, and the guy looks suspicious, and you go up to talk to him, and he's like, he's up to no good, you're like, sir, you know, what's going on with you? And, and you end up, you think, I'm going to arrest this guy, right? So pat him down, and you get the gun out of his front pocket. Damn, he's pissed to rob his store. That's a good, good eye. I got you, right? Would you just stop searching him after you found one gun? No, you'd look uh, a little further, maybe more. Same kind of thing. It's curiosity. So tell me, okay, man, two years ago? Well, really, what happened two years ago? Tell me more. That is shame. And, and since we do that now, look at what we found. And these crimes are not only interconnected, co-occurring, they're a course of conduct over and over and over and over again. Strangulation. Studies on strangulation are just unbelievable. Chicago. They did some surveys in a, in a shelter in Chicago and found that half the women there in the shelter, big shelter in Chicago, half these women had been strangled up to five times before they even got the shelter. And by the way, the people who study strangulation, like Bill Schmock down in Louisville, who's a forensic pathologist, they'll tell you that if you survive a strangulation, you're 800% more likely to become a homicide victim. This is incredible. 
who knew this stuff? I tell you, when we first started working non-fatal strangulations, it was a real lesson, uh, a lesson for me because I worked manual strangulations of homicide, I worked ligature strangulation, I worked accidental death, autoerotic asphyxiation, I worked positional asphyxiation where all people died in custody where officers where we hog tied them where they vomited, strangled them on vomit. I worked all those kind of cases. But to see the things that we didn't know about non-fatal strangulation was unbelievable. A woman one night in Vanderbilt, really, really good hospital, really top-notch, you know, level three trauma center. One of the reasons our homicide rate's so low. And we're talking to the doctor. We brought her in and she'd been strangled. And the doctor said, we've taken a look at her, said, um, she's she's vomited uh, and ingested her own vomit. I said, tell me about that, doc. And he said, you don't understand. I said, no, I, I'm serious. How would you ingest your own vomit? He said, when people are strangled, what's happening here? And, and, and by the way, you wouldn't know this until you talk to the doctor. He said, when people are being strangled, what happens is natural reaction is your lungs are telling the brain, I need some oxygen down here, but it can't, you can't breathe. So your lungs are just lunging and trying to pull away at your airway to get air. But if you've eaten and you've been strangled, what will happen is your food will come up your esophagus. Now, your food coming that direction is not normal. Going south, okay. But once your food's on your stomach, it's covered in gastric acid. Now it's in your esophagus. It's in your airway. It's trying to get out, and your lungs are stripping it out of your out of your out of your esophagus. And now your lungs are filled with undigested hamburger that you had for lunch, covered in gastric acid. Now that burns the linings of your lungs, and it sets up pneumonia. Pneumonia will kill you. Young and old people die all the time in pneumonia. He said that's that's what happens when you ingest your own food. And it's forced into your lungs by the person who's strangling you. We thought, damn, what don't, what else don't we know? And then, you know, here appears Dr. McLean out of San Diego, been working with him for years. He said, Oh, there's more. You know, it, it takes 11 seconds, 10 pounds of pressure on your, on your jugular vein, broader artery, four pounds. You know, it, it doesn't take much at all. 33 pounds of fracture your trachea. Most humans have 134 pounds of pressure in a single grip. If it takes 33 pounds to fracture trachea, just one hand, I've got three times the amount of pressure to fracture trachea and kill you. We weren't writing that down anyway. What was wrong with us? It's like, what's going on here? We were missing it, right? Not anymore, not anymore. Uh, so strangulation is a big one. By the way, there's really interesting studies now in California. John Feynman, prosecutor up in Riverside, California, he decided to take a look at DV killers who kill cops. Or, oh, by the way, offenders who kill cops overall in the Riverside County area. He found half the offenders that had killed a police officer, line of duty deaths, officers killed in line of duty. When he looked at the offender's record, half those offenders have been charged with strangulation. Half. So it makes sense because this is, this is one of the most violent attacks on a person possible, second murder. So that person has already got, you know, violent tendencies. It's already in the lethality system in LAP. Yeah. 70% of our high risk blacks have nuclear exchange. 67%. 60%. 70%. Of all our high risk blacks have. Really? And those are your numbers. 67% of the LAP rating have strangulation. Well, there you go. I mean, that just tells you how prevalent it is. It's pretty, pretty amazing. It's tailor-made for an offender, if you think about it. No tissue trauma to the neck unless you scratch yourself. It's pretty amazing. Uh, so anyway, so 
Now we're including it, and that, it's a big, it's a big, big, big one. It's a miscrime that cheese, etc. You missed. So, so now that we realize that, here's what we also said. When you look at it this way, this is the bulk of the crime you're dealing with in the community. All these are somehow interconnected, co-occurring, and crimes that we miss and we don't ask questions about at all. Um, so, looking at this, and we we talk to chiefs about this all the country. We've got a whole institute of chiefs. We've trained about eight hundred so far. We've asked them, "What's going on in your community? Well, how do your agency investigate? What do your crime numbers look like?" And the chiefs have told us some pretty interesting things. I'll share that with you as we go along. The first one is. The chiefs that acknowledge, not not anybody outside. This is inside law enforcement. They said, "We know that we're looking at the course of conduct crimes now. This is different. The officers have to have time to investigate the cases. The old days of pushing an officer through a domestic as a sergeant, really kind of old. I I, um, I have a problem with a, with a with a with a field sergeant getting on the radio and telling an officer check off that DV call as fast as you can." Would they do that with a drunk driving case? No. How long did it take to process drunk driving? Two, three hours. That's a misdemeanor that has the possibility of being homicide. So why would you do that with a domestic violence case? Now, these are habits we've gotten into. Right? The, the chiefs have said that. So we've got to factor that in. And by the way, it makes sense if a chief is going to city council asking more police officers to have this kind of number. So let me tell you, I need more personnel because we can't answer these, these calls. Domestic violence is the most responded to call in our county. We can't push these officers through it. This is, this crime produces all other crime. I need more officers in the field. It, it gives chiefs a good excuse to ask more personnel. And then we know trauma, and I, you know, I'll show you more about trauma as we go along. But the first time I saw trauma a police officer, I thought they were lying to me. Now, Here's something that, that we don't think much about. Um, how often police officers are traumatized? Police psychologist in Nashville told me generally, the general public, most average everyday citizens, two to three major traumatic events in their life, right, which can produce PTSD symptoms. Average police officer addiction, 120. 120 in a career that can produce PTSD. This is why our suicide rate so high. Not the only reason. You know, other reasons we have to talk about officer wellness. We don't have critical incident debriefing around the country. Years ago, we'd have somebody in trouble. We, we knew it. We meet them at the end of the detail. Probably the parking lot, headquarters, courthouse. Our doctor would arrive, Dr. Jack Daniels. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, you ever met Dr. Daniels or not? Yeah, he, he's okay, you know. He's all right. It's just a short thing, you know. I'm not going to help you out long, right? All right, that's how we do. But the problem with not understanding trauma, and I, I have apologized for this. I wish I'd known better. Nobody did, though. The Canadians. Kind of gave up the game. They, the Canadians started studying this for years ago. They interviewed officers' memories after foot chases and fights. They saw it there. They realized you chase somebody down two, three blocks, you can't remember what happened. You get a fight with somebody, you don't remember exactly what happened. They, that, that's a traumatized person. Shootings, obviously. And I investigated a lot of police shootings. 
I worked in homicide. I'd go to the scene, I'd talk to the officer, and I'd put him back on the spot where he fired the weapon. I'd say, tell me what you did. Guy came out of the market, had a gun, I ordered to stop, he didn't, the gun came up, I fired my gun twice, he went down. There's a dead, there's a dead man, there's a gun, looks like an you know, incredible story. Clerk in the store verifies it, surveillance camera verifies it. You look at the officer's gun, it's empty. And I'd say, no, don't lie to me now. You're investigating, we're being investigated. This is serious. Tell me the truth about everything. I can't, uh, I can't go with the chief with a lie. You got to tell me the truth. Oh, I'm not lying to you. I fired my gun twice. And they wouldn't get off that. They said, absolutely, I only fired twice. That's my memory of it. We get in the review board with the chief and say, look, it's a justifiable shooting, chief, but they're just lying about it. We put that in their personnel file. Now, you all in law enforcement know this. If you put deception and dishonesty in the officer's personnel file, try to get promoted, which means money. I mean, pension. I mean, this is you affect officers' careers. You affect officers' families. You start monkeying around with something like that, and it's not true. It wasn't true. We were looking at traumatized police officers. We thought they were lying to us. They weren't lying to us. They were. That, we had officers lie, but I'm talking about the most part. We're talking about trauma. That's why officers go home now after shooting. They get two sleep cycles. Police departments do that. Go home. Put your feet up. You know. Have an adult beverage, watch the say yes to the dress. <laughs> I mean, you want to get out of policing, just watch say yes to the dress. You completely forget about law enforcement. <laughs> and you know, it's hard. You know, sometimes the groom is there picking out the dress. I don't understand that. <laughs> I didn't think you're supposed to do that. Or you, anyway, no, I like this show. It's really interesting. <laughs> you really want to completely forget about policing or the SpongeBob pants show. That's another like I don't want to watch a cop show. I don't want the sponge man. <laughs> but what but the, the beauty of this is is that police psychologists have told us this is this, you know, a couple of days, you know, and then the memory will start to pull back into place a little bit and you get a little better story. But when we figured this out, we thought, wait a minute, who else is traumatized? Well, we're eight victims, domestic violence and rape victims. This is National Center of Victims and Crime told us. They're at the top of the list of, of people suffering PTSD. I think it's like 13%, 12%, and like 4% for combat veterans. Combat veterans have less PTSD than rape victims do. What, what a moment, right? So we know we've got a seriously traumatized victim with sex assault. So the chief said to acknowledge this, you know, and minimizing by the victim, that minimization is not uh, just another reluctant moment for a victim that's uh, evidence or a crime why else would you tell somebody you don't want somebody prosecuted and, and this is what one of the hardest parts i think for my officers over the years that we do case review and my detective say i got another love case and i said what do you got what are you talking about well i went to the hospital arms broken she didn't want to tell me who did it i knew who did it and i asked her why she said i don't want to go to jail i love him and my detective, look, we're not robots. They would say, can you believe that? Say, yeah, believe that. What do you, what's your point? People don't get together because they hate each other. Hell, they have family, they have mortgage, they, they have a life together. That's what people do. That's what love is. And if it's against the law, pick the wrong person as a mate, hell, half of them should be in jail. Don't raise your hand. I don't want to be But this is part of it. And the reason I'm bringing all this up, these are the things that we just don't talk to police officers about. That's a mistake. 
Nobody ever told me. Nobody ever pulled me aside from being officer and said, Mark, don't get impatient with these cases. Leaving is not an event, it's a process. You are part of the process. The advocates are part of the process. The court's part of the process. That's, so that's something different. This is a different kind of crime victim. Nobody ever told me that. Well, minimizing is obviously uh, a, a big one. Underreporting, we already know that. And then the sale next to the perpetrator. I'm going to tell you, I, I've just been really fascinated by the untested rape kits. Y'all been following this controversy? The, the, the Department of Justice has a whole project called SACI Project, Sex Assault Kit Initiative Project. They've been running about five or six years now, maybe more. And I've got friends who are working on the project. Uh, Jackson, Mississippi, uh, Phoenix, Arizona, Houston, Memphis. And these are looking at why these kits weren't tested. Great kids. Detroit had 12,000. Memphis had 8,000. When they look at the police reports, and I've seen some of this stuff as well, the narrative of the report from patrol tells it all. The bias. Don't get me wrong, I'm not anti-police here, but when you read a field report that says this woman is a known prostitute, she can't be raped. When you see that in the narrative of a police report, how far do you think that's going to go? So what was happening, these cases were going to detectives, they were just storing the kids. Now here's what's happened. And the HBO did a whole special on this called I Am Evidence. And when they did this report out of Detroit, Detroit just started testing all the kids. So far Detroit has called 800 serial rapes. 800. 27 other states where these offenders have raped people. Cleveland, they're testing all their kits. They caught a hundred serial rapes. And the Cleveland DA's office said, we're seeing things that we have never in law enforcement history ever seen before. Someone who's raping everybody. And I, I work sex crimes. Usually you have a type, you know, offenders have a type, usually. But the Cleveland DA's office says, we've got offenders that are raping young women, older black men. It's, it's, and the range is just amazing. And, and uh, uh, Case Western University there is actually looking at this phenomenon. They've never seen anything like it. So that tells we don't, still don't know a lot about sex crimes other than the offender just goes on and on and on and on. Now Memphis, by the way, Memphis is a major lawsuit. Class action lawsuit in Memphis, police department. They weren't testing the kids. There was a lieutenant in the sex crimes unit that was making a decision not to test the kids. There's a large group of women who were raped by offenders. The DNA was in the kit that wasn't tested and they were raped. If they tested the kit, they would have been arrested. This is an interesting lawsuit and they're not gonna win it. I, I don't know any expert in this country that's gonna be able to go, go in court in Memphis and say, yes, it's legitimate not to test a rape kit of a, a rapist from the field because you don't think you'll get a, a, a conviction in the case. Right? And by the way, the result is other women got raped. Now, this, when we talk to chiefs about this, this is what worries them. They say, well, it's kind of like working probation. What are they doing now? Where are they? Who are they affecting, right? Uh, by the way, it, 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 we were at a, a chief's training in Kansas City and the, the first spousal rape case came up. Sailor Morgan, um, 81 or 80, 
prosecutor decided to go forward with a spousal rape prosecution. The guy's name was Good Lark or Good Mark or I'll, I'll get the name in a minute. Raped his wife and the jury acquitted him. He left Salem two years ago. Now, this was in the 80s, two years ago. Salem arrested him again for two other rapes. He was convicted on this one. He's in prison in Oregon now. And the police department is asking the question, where's he been for the last 40 years? Who's he been raping? If he didn't stop, he's preying on somebody. So now, and the point I'm trying to make is ongoing, ongoing, ongoing. This is what the chiefs have said as well. And then again, the big trauma piece, understanding trauma, what it looks like, what it sounds like. And I'm going to show you an example of it. This is graphic. Um, it's on the news. I'm sorry. But this is a police officer who traumatized. And when you watch this, listen to what he says about his experience. This will tell you a lot. Uh, and, and see what we'll talk about it on the other side. On an October night in Miami, Dominic Jean tried setting fire to an 8,000 gallon underground storage tank at this gas station next to Miami's International Airport. Surveillance footage shows the smoke smoldering as Gene grabs a gas pump and starts dousing the ground. It scared me because I thought, wow, dying. That's Miami Dade County Police Officer Mario Gutierrez, who happened to be patrolling the area, racing in, jumps out of his car, hits the emergency shutoff to the gas pumps, then finds himself standing over a simmering time bomb, unsure if the gas tanks would explode. There would have been a massive chaos and they would have thought it was terrorism. Who knows? They wouldn't have been able to talk to me because I would have been nothing but vaporized. Gutierrez tries stopping Dominic Jean with a taser, but it didn't work. Jean starts wildly trying to stab Gutierrez with a knife and a screwdriver. It came from my throat and I blocked it. Gutierrez falls to the ground. Jean viciously swings at him more than 20 times. That was a fight to the death and only one person was going to walk away. Gutierrez is stabbed about a dozen times, but he's able to briefly kick the man off just long enough to grab his gun, firing five times, killing Gene on the spot. I never heard the gunshots. Never heard. All I heard was the clinking of the shell casings hitting the ground. It all lasted less than 30 seconds, but dealing with the emotions hasn't always been easy. I felt like, uh, like I failed. I, I, I was... I need to know that I put up a fight, that I fought this thing. I didn't remember. These days, Officer Gutierrez patrolled the Miami airport alongside his hero. All right, so who are these guys ready to go see? You're thinking Juan Leon, who saved my life. It was Officer Juan Leon who found Gutierrez bleeding on the ground that night. When I pulled up, I knew he was in trouble in, in uh, Brownsville. It was completely covered. It was just red. Then Leon raced his friend to the hospital just in time to save his life. He's my brother. Yeah, he's my brother. It's the unbreakable bond of officers on the front lines. So when he recalls this, he sees upset and he's crying, actually. Um, and he says, I, I failed. He didn't fail. This is, you know, self-blame. It happens often when you're crime victim. It's really um, um, accelerated with rape cases. 
And the problem in historical rape cases, the victim, even the first person they call, like a friend or relative, they may start whining at victim. Why were you out late at night? Why were you drinking? I told you not. And automatically they start blaming themselves. Maybe they're right. I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't. And then, you know, historical police interviews have been, well, you know, why did this happen? Why did that happen? We're going to talk about language today a little bit as well. And it was really, and I know this has got nothing to do with the case, but it's the healing of the victim. This, you're not promoting healing when you're asking these, these, these interrogation questions to a victim. And we did it forever, forever we did this. We polygraphed rape victims for years before we take the case. It's been a while back, but it was part of the stand. The prosecutor said, we're not taking the rape case we polygraphed. Imagine that, right? The rape and you didn't polygraph. So anyway, he couldn't remember certain things. He heard the shell clinking. He didn't have a gun go off, right? Um, that's trauma. What you're seeing is trauma. Uh, and what's the difference between that and uh, any other crime victim? And so, interesting though, there was part of his senses that were working like it, that he could hear, but his memory was fragmented because that I was told about in Denver, prosecutor who I trained with said, we had this woman in the interview room, she was raped by a cab driver, they were doing an interview with her and they wanted to get a prescription of the guy. And she said, I can't tell you what he looked like. And he said, no, he was on top of it. Can't give us a description of his face. No, I don't remember. So they thought, about, oh, you know, is this a real case? You know, so the detective within trauma informed and trained, and he said, okay, let's 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 start over. Um, tell me what you were thinking while you're being raped. It's not a question no one would ask. State of mind. Well, she said I went somewhere, and he said, well, tell me where you went. And she said, well, I, I sort of checked out association. We know what that is. Your mind checks out. Was anything unusual about it? She said, no, you know, it's just another. Oh, wait, she said there was. It was a rip, it was ripped, there was a C-shaped rip in the headline. They put that out to patrol in a week to have the guy in custody. Because what he did, he realized if I can't get all the details, I'd be patient. I'm gonna ask, what did you see? What did you smell? What did you hear? What did you feel? Because all these senses kind of change sometimes when you're under you know, uh, threat of, in, of bodily injury or death. That's what happened with the terrorist here. Like he heard certain things, certain things he couldn't, he couldn't remember certain things, certain things that blamed himself for, he cried, he relived it, he it. So that's wrong. Um, and we've seen it with other things too, traffic accidents. Let me, let me tell you about my stepfather just for a second. He was a police fighter, and I watched him fight the Dallas police, the Fort police, Texarkana police. He loved hitting police officers. And he would step out on the front porch when Dallas police may get there. Neighbors, we never called, neighbors called. 
He stepped out on the front porch, and while they're talking to him, he's rolling the sleeves up on his shirt. And he would move around while I was talking to him. I used to watch him do this. It was the most amazing thing. He was moving around, not one officer, two officers. And all those officers in the old days, you couldn't be a cop this year was six foot tall. That was keeping women out of policing. They were moving, he was moving around on them, and I knew exactly, he was setting them up. He would talk, and then all of a sudden he'd be on them, and he would grab these officers. He was a street fighter. He'd grab them by the back of the shirt, and, as he, and, he, and he'd start running away from them, pulling them backwards. It's a little street fighter's trick called running a jack. Uh, you know, I, I see all these kung fu experts on TV. They would have these people. This is the old style street fighter. He's just a tough guy. He pulled them backwards and he's running backwards. These police officers, he's got his left hand, he's coming over the top of their head, and he's hitting them in the face like that. And he's just pulling the hell out of them. And he knew how to do this. And all while he No, you're exactly right, Joe Spade, and, and they're proud of it too. I've had friends tell me I've been doing this longer you have. Uh, or you'll get a range. And it's interesting. They they don't just automatically go to the fist. All these offenders will meet you in the driveway. Hands stuck out, shaking hands with you. How you doing today, officer? What's going on? Like, oh, look, I, you know, my wife and I, we had a little argument. And it was just a little one. And it's all right now. She's okay. She was upset. It's over nothing. You go ahead and leave. I want to tell you something, officer, and I really mean this. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate what you all do down there at the sheriff's office. Um, you know, your sheriff is a wonderful man. I voted for him twice. Uh, you know, when I was a younger man, I thought about being an officer myself, you know. But that's all kind of sauce for goose, as they say, because your, your goose is being cooked. And that's a manipulative personality. Now, the other character, obviously, there's different stages of this. And by the way, it's just not me. Uh, there's been studies on this right from the moment you hear him in the background and 911 call from the time they also check off the call. We know the kind of things they're likely to do. And this is one of them, exactly right. Or they realize they got the, they got the wrong officer. The officer's not going to put up. Then they'll move up something else. I'll have your badge. You work for me. I'll sue you. Right? Sir, uh, let's go. You're under arrest. And then the fight's on, they'll do that. Or depending on what's behind them, they may put up a bigger fight. Uh, it, this is an old tactic as well. You know, we know offenders isolate victims from their family and services, 
let me isolate the police officer from the victim. That's a, that's a standard of a lot of offenders. We see it most often pronounced in elder abuse cases. Elder abuse cases, you'll get a call of the family member and say, my mom's living with my brother. He's not feeding her. She's not getting medication. He, she hasn't been to her doctor in three months. She's got heart condition. And you go to, you know, just check on welfare and you start the interview. And, and it's what the caretaker, it can be a, a daughter, it could be a son, it could be a husband, it could be a wife. You'll hear this. Well, they're not awake right now. Well, let's wake them up. Well, yeah, but, okay, we'll do that. But I, I have to be in the room when we do this interview. Can you explain to me why I said, well, my mom's got a heart condition and uh, you just decided you will frighten her. And, and if, she, if she has a heart attack, I'll sue you. And you're going, really? You got that worked out, huh? Uh, no, you're not going to be in the room with me when I interview your mom. Oh, yes, yes, I am. And, and they'll fight you, or children, too, child abuse cases. Here's when the victim is, is praying that you don't ask to talk to my kids alone. So the kids are honest, right? The kids are going to say, yeah, daddy did this, yeah, mommy did this. That's when you hear, I, I, I refuse to let my kids be interviewed with you in the room. This is all isolation. And it's all part of the plan, either cool, either calm, either collective, or let me uh, you know, talk to you about in front of the call. So, again, nowhere in my original training in law enforcement did anybody stand in my cabinet and tell me, you're going to go to the scene, you might see injuries, you might not see injuries, but here's what you're going to see. If it's a domestic violence call, you'll see this. Now, you may answer a situational violence call. Situational violence is not domestic violence. Situational violence is... Super Bowl day. A little too much alcohol. Brother slaps his other brother in an argument. Father pushes, you know, his, you know, his cousin. You know, they get over a fight over you know, some kind of bed. Or they're just mad from old stuff years ago. That's not domestic. It's a crime, but it's just somebody hitting somebody. That's something else. You get on the scene, somebody's hitting somebody, forcing somebody, intimidating somebody, sexually assaulting somebody. That's domestic abuse. That's different. So nobody told me the difference when I was training. So this, this is what we're trying to catch up to. How do we train officers? How do we train officers to understand this? And the brain science is really supporting all that as well. Um, and then uh, when the chiefs have told us, we actually miss crime, stalking, sex assault, strangulation. And this is law enforcement's admission that we miss these crimes. Witness intimidation. And let me say one more thing about witness intimidation. My recommendation to law enforcement is to automatically put requirements of officers in the domestic violence policy to ask questions about witness intimidation. Because if the prosecutors are telling us it's universal, why aren't we asking victims questions like, have they ever threatened you not to go to court? Have they ever threatened you not to talk to prosecutors? Have they ever threatened you not to talk to the police? Have they ever assaulted you to keep you from talking to the police? Have they ever offered you food, money, or the police? Those are the foundations for witness intimidation. This is felonies. And it's a damn sin to walk past perfectly good on these felonies. Works hard for the misdemeanors. And there's that big fat felony, and we don't take it. Uh, that's a mistake. And again, not to beat up on the prosecutors here. They're not going to go forward with a, a, a PC case very often. I have to be honest with you. They won't prove down a reasonable doubt. That's what the, they have to face a judge every day. You have a prosecutor that's going to every day with 
the court with a weak cases. Well, the judge is going to say, stop wasting our time. This man has rights. We're not going to do this. We want a solid case. So this is where we have to examine how we build our cases in law enforcement. Because the chief's already telling us we miss these cases. Uh, and by the way, you know, in here, you've got hostage situations as well. I spent 15 years on our SWAT team in Nashville. 15 years. 15 years on call. 15 years. 50 call outs for a year. Six, seven hundred calls I responded to. 90% of them domestic related. Something that I've also been noticing, um, like I, I was hard on a strangulation case. I've had a couple of um, jury trials with strangulation cases recently. You know, it fits all the, the code section for the strangulation charge. Um, I feel like, and our juries will, will usually convict of a lesser included charge. I don't think our public Police won't use it unless they're justified in possibly killing someone. This starts to make sense to me. Of course, the experts, and you know, you know, the whole, the whole.
Right. Therefore, this is not a less than crime. Right. Right. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's been a lot of debate about that. I've, I've got friends who teach defense. Oh, yeah, we still do it. I'm going, oh, man. Come on. Virginia, by the way, you've got a strangulation law here. We do too. Yeah, this, is the, this is the ironic part of it. How do you let your officers use it on minor offenses? And not be charged with strangulation when the detectives over in the next part of the department charging somebody with strangulation. It doesn't make a lot of sense. So this is the you know why a lot of departments don't do it anymore. So anyway, so um, hostages, seventy-five to ninety percent. That's uh, where they come from. Domestic violence cases, and I have to tell you, this is the moment where it's it, you're at the end of the line here. I mean, the negotiators. Are there any negotiators here today? If you're a negotiator, if you don't understand domestic violence, you get somebody killed really quick. Um, because now the problem is a hostage, a hostage is a problem. And this is somebody who's got to beef with this hostage. This is not a trap bank robber. This is something else. And the mistake some police departments make is not teaching first responders tactical negotiations. Now, I don't want to get into the policy stuff. And, and, and you know too much here, but if an officer in the field doesn't have the basics around how to deal with negotiation on a traffic stop, on a rolling domestic, and pull on a call, and all of a sudden somebody's got a gun on somebody, what can happen is you can push the offender right over the top to an execution of a hostage. And I've seen this happen. The option, the, the solution here, and by the way, you can't say, "Oh, sir." Don't shoot her right now. I'll call my negotiator. They'll be here in an hour. That's not reality. So you've got to know how to deal with a offender like this. This offender's got some beef with the victim. And I've watched negotiators do this, and it's just amazing to watch it happen where they'll start talking to, to a hostage taker. Okay, sir, I'm so-and-so. Let me talk to you. What's your problem? Let's talk about you. She left me. She took my kids. I'm going to kill her. Let's talk about you. And they don't. Stop talking about you, 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 because at the moment the officer starts talking about her, then all of a sudden the focus is back on her. That's when the execution can happen. I mean, I know this, this is, they're all different. I got that. But you have to be careful with this. I've watched negotiators do this, and the victim actually sort of disappears from the conversation anyway. And that's when you see the gun come back and the release of hostages. It, it does happen. Most negotiators are successful up in the 90% range. So that tells you something about how good they are. But with these kind of cases, you may have that case where the, you know, this guy's already zipped up. He's ready to kill her. He's ready to kill himself. There's a reason for why he's doing this. And you're in the way. We had a woman one night who was held hostage. Good example. Neighbors called. We got there. We separated everybody. Got all the neighbors out. Negotiator called in. She asked, she answered the phone. And she said, the first thing she said to our negotiators was, I don't know why your patrol cars are in my driveway. I don't know why you got the spotlights on my house. I never called you. I'm telling you to leave. We weren't going anywhere. We've been held hostage. He finally got on the phone and they convinced him to surrender. And he did. But before that, she stepped out on the front porch by herself. And we thought, She's escaping. He released her. He's coming out with her. He's going to kill her. And the door closed behind her. And we started yelling. We all started yelling. 
Police, police, run, run to our boys. We're here, run. And she looked at us, went right back inside the house again. We thought, what the hell is this? So we asked her about it after we risked the guy. We said, God, we're so glad you were saved. Please, thank goodness. But we need to ask you, tell us about your decision to go back in the house. And she said, and then she just opened up. She said, I, I, I've been through this many times. And we had never been there. And we told her that. We said, ma'am, our agency has never, ever responded to this house before. And she said, I know. And I've made sure you never have responded. And we asked her what she was about. She said, look, I have learned how to negotiate. That's what she said. Those are words for my own release. Now, the hostage is the hostage negotiator. And she said, here's what I'd do. I promised him I wouldn't get a protective order. I promised him I wouldn't leave. I promised him I wouldn't go to the shelter. He'd put the gun away. But then she said, you know, but there's been times when I realized that, you know, it's not going to work. So I just submit. He rapes me. Incredible amount of rape in domestic violence cases. And we just were kind of speechless. And then she said, but officer, she said, my husband's not really my problem. <laughs> well, the guy just held you hostage. It's not your problem. She said, "No." She said, "You're my problem." And we just rescued her. And she said, "Look, I, I knew how to survive without you, and I've done that for years. I didn't know how to survive with you." This is the other part of reluctance. We label it uncooperation. It sounds like they're planning the crime with the offender. An uncooperative witness is not the same as a reluctant witness. A reluctant witness is reluctant for a particular kind of reason, and somebody's sometimes forcing them into not cooperating. That's a mistake. Call them, you know, you made your bed, sleep in it, kind of a moment. We've seen that happen as well. You don't want to say that to the victim. This is survival, pure, absolute survival. And she was telling us how she did it. What she didn't know was going to happen. We got involved. And by the way, the, and you get into diverse, diverse populations. Uh, this, this may offend some of you. And I don't mean to do this, but I in this state, in this state of Virginia, I sit with African American women. I ask them, "Why did you call the police?" And many of them said, "Do you, you know anything about community trauma? Do you know anything about what my family has gone through?" In this country, I said, "Don't tell me about it." Well, the police have never been a solution for me because every black man in town's been in jail. This is what they've said to me. So you want me now to help you put another black man in jail? That again is what they've said to me. Um, and now, you know, I'm watching it happen. Austin police now—they completely reorganized the training curriculum and they're training police on what is community trauma how long has it gone how long is the black family been traumatized by white police now, i know this may offend some of you i don't mean to just tell you what i'm listening to where somebody's trying to make a decision do i call the police are they a solution for me and they may not be and that's why communities around the country are looking at this and saying is there another solution to this? Is there another way to deal with this? How do we deal with it? So it's a conversation you got to have in your, in your CCR. 
It's a conversation you got to have in your community. Because if you look at the murder rate in this country, African-American women still sit at the top. Homicide victims. How do we deal with that? How do we commission the calls? It's a, it's a serious conversation. And it's you know, something we haven't been prepared for. And I look at I'll be honest with you. Um, I always missed by my own family until I started doing my own genealogy. I know my history. I've got about 18 generations now. But I've got to figure out who they were. And, and my family owned slaves for over 200 years. Over 200 years. Four white southern farmers breaks the myth about rich white people owning, you know, only ones that own slaves. That's not true. I've got the deeds of, of and last will and testaments of giving men and women away to the older son of the family. That's part of who we were. And then growing up, you know, in the South, I was taught to be a racist. There's no doubt about that. Um, does that impact law enforcement today? That's the question. And we have to ask the question of the victim, tell me you know, what it is we need to understand about your experience. It's your experience. And by the way, this is really coming into focus now because we're talking more about, and you heard Joking talk about it, victim center. Victim center is giving that victim the opportunity to have a voice and the services they offer. Now, I've watched this with high-risk assessment teams. You know, high-risk assessment teams will do this. They'll, they'll bring a victim in to assessment. Let's say, Ms. Smith, we want you to meet a group of people here today. We've got the prosecutor, we've got the judge, we've got the probation, we've got the police. And here's a list of all the people here. And if there's somebody on this list that you want to be there, we'll ask them to leave. But we'll continue today with our assessment. And she'll look at the list and she'll say, I don't want the prosecutor to be there. And, and can the police officer not be there as well? Sure. They'll eliminate them, but the risk assessment will carry on because it's a community effort, not just a criminal justice effort. And it makes sense to me because you, you may have a victim four who's broken the law. Uh, four people break the law. They sell food stamps. They maybe sell a little drugs on the back door of the house, make a little extra money. I've been poor. I never sold drugs. But if I needed to live and pay, feed my family, I'd sell drugs. You want your kids to starve? No. So the problem with people who are poor and may break the law occasion, the offender knows that. And that's when the offender will start saying, go ahead and call the police about me raping your six-year-old daughter. And they'll hear all about your food stamp scheme. You want to go to prison? I'll tell them all about your insurance fraud or your hot checks. And this is where the victim says, no, I'm not going to do that. If I leave here, there'll be nobody to take care of my daughter. I mean, these are these decisions that we don't even consider or think about uh, in law enforcement. If I'm wrong about this, I mean, I, I, I you know, it's, it's kind of like when you lift a veil of a way it's going. Oh my God, is this going on? And by the way, I saw my own mother go through a lot of this as well. Um, she tried her best to get out. She started using force herself. I panicked when I was a kid, thinking my mom's going to be in prison. I'll never see her again. What am I going to do we'll be, uh, it just It'll be over with, bro. You know, guardian angels fluttering around my house when I was a kid. Technically. Although the Affordable Housing does not have poverty, but initially, what we see more, I think, on the side, provides services in the gray area. They make enough, but they don't make enough to qualify for 
closing services, and then and they also don't think they'll separate. So that kind of keeps them tied to. Yeah, I look at economics too, and, I, and by the way, the defender the defender uses economics against the victim. You weaponize food, weaponize money, transportation, and we kind of subtly see it sometimes. You know, you walk him out the car, he's under arrest. She runs out and says, oh, please don't take him to jail. I love him. Officer, he's got the car keys. Can you take the car keys out of his pocket? And you go, don't you have an extra set? Oh, no, we only have one set of car keys. And, you know, mostly when couples have a car, they each have a set of keys, unless I'm trying to keep you from leaving, unless I'm trying to keep you from freedom. So you see these subtle things. Denying them the food, denying them medication. So it's a it's a game they play. They hope we don't understand. We're getting better at this nowadays. So those are some of the things. Now, uh, why don't we take? Uh, yeah, we'll finish a little early. We'll go about ten more minutes, and we'll because we'll, I went past the break. Let me finish. I'll get you out of your seat, sir. So we talked about what is. Um, now, this is something we ought to factor into our cases. Oh. In our academy with our older officers, and we get into conversations like gay and lesbian couples. And man, it's like, what are you upset about? I don't like to be around gay men, they make me uncomfortable. And I don't, uh, I just I go in quick, I make a report, and I get out. I just don't want to be around them. They're sinful. And I go, oh, but, but wait a minute, man, are you clergy? Let's just try, let, let the church deal with all the sinning, we deal with crime. And by the way, you're coming from a gay man. What is the matter with you? You think you're so handsome when you go in that house? They're gonna grab you and kiss you. <laughs> you're not that handsome. So get over, get over yourself. I don't hear that same thing today. So I'm encouraged, actually. I think this is a better version of us. Um, um, so I, I'm, I think we're on the right track. Um, minimization that's happened with police. We do minimize, uh, and this could be a problem. We have to be trained on it. And then, you know, the impacts. The violence gets worse. If we miss the crime, officer safety is compromised. We get sued. We'll talk about that later. You know, community trust compromised. Victims won't call. So this is again. This is what law enforcement said. You know, this is our problem. And when I talk about officer safety compromise, by the way, here's the compromise of the officer safety. This when it started. My First officer we lost, 1875, killed him with a message. Crazy, was gunned down by the Indian defender. Crowd broke him out of jail. The defender is lynched We don't do that anymore. But that's how far back it goes. I haven't looked at Virginia. Um, 
I wouldn't be surprised if they were, you know, most states I look at, I think Ohio had an 18, 11 case in Cincinnati. Um, New York police had a couple of uh, turn of the uh, 19th century cases where cops killed on domestics. So the point is, they've been doing this a long time, like Ashley Gwynn. Perks won it a little bit, you know, killed on our first shift in Crawley. Westerville, Ohio, two officers gunned down, three officers killed in Pittsburgh, three officers killed in Birmingham, six officers shot in South Carolina, five officers shot. See what I'm getting at? Multiple officers killed and shot on call. This happens. Um, who are these people? In the, in the blessed in the Texas case, Tootie who shot in the arm, he, he walked me through this entire gun battle. He said, Mark, when this started, this guy was arrested for a single battery. They witnessed the deputy witnessing hit his wife. They arrested him on the spot. They interviewed the wife and said, what's going on? She said, I don't have anything to say to you. I, I am not going to cooperate with you. But they didn't need a cooperation. They took him to the jail and the sheriff said, okay, wait a minute. You arrested him because you saw him hit his wife. He was driving down the road. He didn't care who saw him and she's not cooperating. The sheriff said she's in big trouble. So they offered her assistance. She refused it. He bonded out of jail. He went home. He's walking down the street in his neighborhood a week later, firing an assault rifle in the air. Nobody called the sheriff. So, and I don't know why they didn't know that he wanted to shoot at their house. He got arrested on a second charge of assault. That's when she said, take me to shelter. They took him to shelter. His friend bonded him out of jail. He said, where's your wife? The sheriff's got her. I don't know where she is. He said, well, let's, let's go to the gun store. Bought him 400 rounds of ammunition, dropped him off at his house, made a false call to the police. The only two deputies on duty, Monson Stevenson, arrived. He was across the street and killed them both. DPS sent a trooper out. He was killed, shot him to the windshield. Border Patrol agent responded, trying to help. He shot him to the left arm. Tudyk arrived, blocked down the street. Tudyk says, I pulled a block down the street, Mark. I thought, he can't even see me. So I'm trying to figure out what to do because I'm the only officer on duty in this county. But everybody else shot. And he said, I looked to my left, and there this man stood an armed breacher man. He said, I don't know how he did it, but he got on his belly and he crawled a city block where I didn't see him. And he stood up to his rifle. And as soon as he stood up, he shot me to the right arm. And he said, he blew my right arm completely off at the elbow. It just destroyed it. I'm dying trying to get my gun out, and he disappears. SWAT team from San Antonio flies in. They medevac him out. They save him and the border patrol agent, and he said he killed himself at the end of his call. He was in control of that, right? So they took what belonged to him. It's not crazy thinking. This is entitlement thinking. All that's mine. You can't have that. That belongs to me. You take it, you pay a price for it. That's what some of these vendors believe. So these are a few of these cases. And, and that way we know that mass killings are like Southern Springs, Texas. We're on a project in San Antonio. The last time I was down there, uh, one of the lieutenants at the, at the department was in a class and we were doing an officer safety uh, class. And we mentioned Southern Springs, you know, the church is like right outside of San Antonio. 25 people killed, I think. Um, and he come up he, at the break, he said, that's my church. And I said, wow, Luke, were you there that day? He said, no, I was on duty here at San Antonio PD. The guy walked in church. He said, I work on the church. 
every Sunday. We're going to church. Imagine that. He said the guy walked in and he started killing everybody. The church was helping her get out of the relationship. And this guy was prohibited from having a gun, but the Air Force didn't tell the Texas police. It wasn't in the system. So he walked into a gun store and bought an assault rifle and then walked into the church and started killing everybody. Uh, Air Force lost the lawsuit. The family member sued. It's going to be a major settlement. It's hard to sue the Department of Defense, but they did it in this case because they didn't notify the local police that I shouldn't have a gun. Mass shootings, mass shootings, we're seeing them all over the country now. I just hold my breath every time I see a mass shooting thing. Just wait. Takes about an hour or two, and then you hear the police say, relationship, wife, husband, children, and you know you've got a domestic shooting. Courthouse shooting, yellow one. Father followed his daughter in law, caught her. Mental detective killed her. It's a custody case. Killed her friend, shot a court officer. All and over again. See the cases. So, one of the recommended readings that I, I suggest to police and others is Why Are They Killed? David Adams wrote the book. He's, uh, he runs Emerge out of Boston. It's a batter's intervention program. He taught the state corrections to let him go into the prisons there and interview 30 killers. And I tell you, it's the chill, one of the most chilling reads I've ever, I've ever uh, read. And I know David, and um, he says not a single one of these men showed any remorse. While he interviewed them, they had no reflection or remorse on what they did. He said several of them he interviewed had killed their entire family members, other children. And he called, David called it righteous slaughter. That is, they're righteous in killing the entire family because they no longer have possession of the family. If I can't have you, nobody will. That's the thinking for the, some of these men. And I think it's essential for law enforcement to understand the mentality here. Now, I, I, I want to say this too. This I'm, I'm, I'm giving you a lot of stuff. You drink out of a fire hose. I got it. And it sounds like I'm talking about every offender. I'm not talking about every offender. Uh, you know, I, not every victim is traumatized. Not every DV offender is a killer. There, there are remorseful people. There are people who batters in them. Um, I'm just talking about the worst case scenarios here. The problem for some law enforcement is that we haven't been able to determine which is which. And by minimization, we have obviously a problem. Uh, so, why don't we do this? So, it's about a quarter tail. So I know the lunch will be ready at 12. It's already ready. Good. Take your time. Uh, I'll turn it over to you then. I'll see you back here after lunch. Then.